This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, September 19, 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. At the Cato Institute's annual Constitution Day festivities, attorney and Cato Institute senior fellow Randy Barnett revisited the big case of the term, the case that decided the fate of the president's health care law known as Obamacare. The legal challenge to the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, commonly known as Obamacare, which I advocated as a law professor before representing the National Federation of Independent Businesses, one of its lawyers, was about two huge things, saving the country from Obamacare and saving the Constitution for the country. To my great disappointment, we lost the first point in the Supreme Court's 5-4 to four ruling to uphold the Health Care Act. But to my enormous relief, we won the second. Before the decision, I figured that it was all or nothing. If we lost on Obamacare, it would mean that the government and law professors' reading of the Commerce and Necessary and Proper Clauses would have prevailed. If we won, it would be because our theories of the Commerce and Necessary and Proper Clauses had been affirmed by the court. But as it happened, although we did not succeed in invalidating Obamacare, our view of the Commerce and Necessary and Proper Clauses were affirmed by five justices. If before the case was decided you had put a gun to my head and mandated that I choose one of these outcomes over the other, I believe I would have picked the Constitution. Obamacare can still be reversed politically, thanks in part to the delay in much of its implementation to 2014, uh, due to the desire to spread six years of cost over a 10-year budget window, and in part to our lawsuit, which kept the law in legitimacy limbo for over two years. Adding constitutional concerns to the concerns over policy helped contribute to Obamacare's consistent unpopularity. Our lawsuit helped make the Affordable Care Act a centerpiece of the election of 2010, turning control over the House of Representatives to Republicans. It remains a prominent issue in the presidential campaign of 2012, with one candidate very publicly pledged to its repeal. We will soon know whether the 2012 election will correct this grave policy mistake. But had Obamacare been upheld for the reasons expressed by the government, by most law professors, and by the four liberal justices, the damage to the Constitution might never have been corrected. So the question, who won the case, is actually a complicated one to answer, as it depends as much on what might have been decided as opposed to what actually was. It depends on what you think the constitutional law baseline was before the decision, and it depends on how much you think constitutional law doctrine actually matters. So let me briefly examine these issues before turning my attention to what the decision may augur for the future. This battle for the Constitution was forced upon defenders of limited government in 2010 when the Democrats in Congress insisted in the health care bill that it was constitutional to require all Americans to purchase insurance or pay a fine as a regulation of interstate commerce. Had we not contested this power grab, Congress's regulatory powers would have been rendered limitless. They are not. On that point, we prevailed completely. Indeed, the case has put us ahead of where we were before Obamacare. Five justices of the Supreme Court have now definitively ruled that the Commerce Clause, Necessary and Proper Clause, and Spending Power have limits, that the mandate to purchase private health insurance, as well as the threat to withhold Medicaid funding unless states agree to expand their coverage, exceeds those limits, and that the court will enforce these limits. This was huge. On the Commerce Clause, Chief Justice Roberts and four dissenting justices accepted all of our side's arguments about why the insurance mandate exceeded Congress's power. Quote, the individual mandate cannot be upheld as an exercise of Congress's power under the Commerce Clause, Roberts wrote. Quote, that clause authorizes Congress to regulate interstate commerce 
not to order individuals to engage in it, unquote. Roberts adopted this view for the precise reason we advanced. Granting Congress this power would gravely limit the liberties of the people. As he put it, quote, allowing Congress to justify federal regulation by pointing to the effect of inaction on commerce would bring countless decisions an individual could potentially make within the scope of federal regulation and under the government's theory, empower Congress to make those decisions for him, unquote. <clears throat> Supporters of the health care law overhaul had invoked the power of Congress to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers, seeing it as a constitutional carte blanche to adopt any means to facilitate the regulation of insurance companies that did not violate an express constitutional prohibition. Roberts squarely rejected this argument, quote, even if the individual mandate is necessary to the act's insurance reforms, such an expansion of federal power is not a proper means for making these reforms effective, unquote. Tellingly, he did not rest this finding of impropriety on any express prohibition in the Constitution, but on the threat of this invocation of power to undermine the enumerated power scheme that is, in, that is the federalist spirit of the Constitution, to quote from McCulloch versus, Mar um, McCulloch versus Maryland. As Justice Roberts concluded, applying these principles of, to McCull of McCulloch versus Maryland, the individual mandate cannot be sustained under the Necessary and Proper Clause as an essential component of the insurance reforms. For these reasons, the court held that economic mandates are unconstitutional under both the commerce and necessary and proper clauses. And yes, this was the holding of the court. In part 3C of his opinion, which was joined without dissent by the four liberal justices, Chief, uh, Chief Justice writes, quote, the court today holds that our Constitution protects us from federal regulation under the commerce clause so long as we abstain from the regulated activity, unquote. Why the liberals concurred in this holding is a matter of the same sort of speculation that attends Chief Justice Roberts' reported switch in time to save Obamacare. But vote for it, they did. Of course, we, are now, we will now hear hyper-formalist accounts of the holding dictum distinction from those who normally are against formalism. They will tell us that the courts cannot dictate the holding of the case by what they say. But however true this may be, that is not all that establishes this as the rule of the case. Contrary to the assertion that Chief Justice Roberts did not need to reach the Commerce Clause issue, on his reasoning, he clearly did. The opinion of the fifth vote of the fifth justice not only held that the penalty could be justified as a tax, it also held that this was only so under a saving construction that eliminated the legal requirement to buy health insurance and replaced it with an option to buy insurance or pay the tax. Quote, while the individual mandate clearly aims to induce the purchase of health insurance, it need not be read to declare that failing to do so is unlawful. Neither the act nor any other law attaches negative legal consequences to not buying health insurance beyond requiring a payment to the IRS. The government agrees with that reading, confirming that if someone cho chose to pay rather than obtain health insurance, they have fully complied with the law. The fifth vote to uphold the rest of the Affordable Care Act rested upon this rationale, every bit as much as Justice Powell's fifth vote in the Bakke case rested on the diversity rationale. As he wrote himself, Chief Justice Roberts said, without deciding the Commerce Clause question, I would find no basis to adopt such a saving construction of the penalty. The fact that the four dissenting conservative justices failed to formally join Chief Justice Roberts' opinion or even mention it does not entail that his reasoning is mere dictum. If it did, then his ruling that conditioning all Medicaid funding on the states accepting Obamacare's expansion of the program was unconstitutional would also be dictum. After all, 
No other justice formally joined him on this aspect of his ruling either. Yet no one denies that that's the legal effect of this case. Why? Because it was the reasoning of the fifth swing vote. But in addition to uh, 3C and the logic, part 3C of the opinion and the logic of the opinion of the fifth justice uh, to uphold Obamacare, providing a formalist justification for this being the holding, we also have the realist fact that five justices embraced the entirety of our Commerce Clause and Necessary and Proper Clause argument. Critics like Charles Freed can dismiss this as emanating from the leaderless Tea Party all they like, but it is now embraced by what's called the Rule of Five. And even if the Tea Party played a role, we have long been told that this is how the living constitution, which by, by which is meant constitutional doctrine, evolves in response to social movements. So unless it is a living constitutionalism for me, but not for thee, if the outcome of this case was indeed impelled by popular constitutionalism, that would make it more, not less legitimate on living constitutionalist grounds. Randy Barnett is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. You can get a copy of the Cato Institute's newly released Supreme Court Review at our website, cato.org.